This is the Blackout Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Blackout Podcast where I get to talk to amazing people that do amazing things. And today I'm super happy to have Trevor Murphy of Pigeon Row, Arcadia embassy acadian embassy yeah sweet um thanks for coming on the podcast today oh thanks for having me uh so tell me a little bit more about trevor murphy well uh i'm a person who does a lot of things i guess <laughs> but uh, most of them stem from and uh revolve around my love of music so by day i am a publicist and i mostly work with music uh folks like i'll work uh, music festivals but also artists and album campaigns and tour campaigns and things like that um, then I also have this little record label called the Cadian Embassy, which is very small, very uh, family kind of oriented and uh, focuses on just independent music and also talking a little bit about cultural identity as sort of a subsection of what we want the label to be. Mm. Uh, and then on top of that, I'm also a musician. I play in some bands and my band that I have on the go most currently is a band called Quiet Parade, which I've had for about 10 years. Now. Awesome. And we didn't even say the host of the record winning uh, record award winning show, Halifax is burning. That's right. Yeah. It's just, uh, <laughs> also a show I have on, on CKDU 88.1 FM. Yeah. Like, I mean, if you uh, look, it's like, it's just one, everything. And, and, and but, but not just that, it's actually played not just around in Halifax, it's syndicated in other places. Yeah, there's a few other markets that play. Most of the maritime stations will yeah. play them, and I know for a fact that um, CGSR in Edmonton also plays it. I actually got a message from somebody in Edmonton the other day who said they heard the show on the radio and they had some questions about one of the bands I was playing. So it's like a neat feeling, too. Sweet, sweet, yeah. sweet. Um, so where did his love for music start? Man, I don't know. Like, music was always around when I was a kid. Not, not like, not, and not in the way where like my parents played music, but I just always remember being fond of music and always being a, an important part of like the reason for gathering with people in my childhood. Like, I remember bonding with people over music, and mm. I don't really know how that was instilled in me, uh, other than the fact that my parents, my mom specifically, did listen to music, and we would go on like Sunday drives. And listen to Fleetwood Mac records and Cat Stevens records, and you know, I don't know. I just it just it, it for some reason it just clicked with me, and it always has, I think. And then when did when did you start playing an instrument? It was quite late, actually. I was 16 when I first started playing music, and I learned how to play bass first. Oh, okay. thought it would be easier. There's only four <laughs> strings. <laughs> uh, and I learned a lot of the fundamentals. I'm completely self-taught, and I moved from bass into guitar and, and then eventually into singing and things like that, too. Oh, okay. Well, do you remember the first song you wrote? Oh, no, I don't remember the first song I wrote, but I can assure you it probably wasn't that good. <laughs> um, I think when I was first starting to learn how to play guitar, I was learning uh, very simple songs. Like the, I was really into bands like The White Stripes and mm. things like that because those songs seemed very catchy and very good, but also very simple in a in not in a bad way, but in a way that like I can play this too, yeah, you know? Yeah. And even on bass, like I was learning songs by gob and just like really blink 182 like very simple kind of four chord root note kind of stuff and mm -hmm. that sort of helped me understand the more complex stuff around music sometimes 
And what was the process of learning? Because you see, it pretty much self-taught. Yeah. So basically, what I did was I didn't even know how to play an instrument, and I bought a bass. I think I, <laughs> I bought it. I bought it on eBay. Oh, okay. I was like very much an eBay kid at yeah. the sort of dawn of the internet. So I just bought this bass. I thought it looked cool. It was relatively cheap. Showed mm -hmm. up, you know. And I learned. And the thing that I did the first way that I learned how to play music was I actually like made myself a chart on a Bristol board. Oh. So it was like E A D G the chords in the bass the you know the strings on the bass and then zero through like 25 so it was sort of like a visual chart of saying like okay if it's if i'm playing the e string open that's e if i play it on the one that's f and etc cetera, etc cetera. and so that way it taught me some of the songs i wanted to learn how to play i was really just like listening to music and reading tabs online oh. and some of the songs i couldn't find tabs for but i could find chords for so i thought if i know at least what the chord is i've got a starting point and that yeah. gave me a, a good like fundamental knowledge of where everything was on an instrument on a stringed instrument but like wouldn't it just be easier to go learn from someone it could have been i don't find myself like I'm the kind of person when it comes to learning mm. something like that, specifically something when it comes to music that I just sort of like, I have to, it has to lock in to myself. Like I learn much better if I can teach myself mm. rather than watching somebody else do it. Like even if somebody was teaching me the learning process, I think for myself would come from going home and just and like honing it, it and repetition it. and doing it and doing it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think I never really thought. And also where I grew up, I kind of grew up in a rural place. I didn't really know. Where any, did you grow up? I grew up just outside of Yarmouth on a place called Surrettes Island. So it's okay. about twenty-five minute drive to the town of Yarmouth proper. Okay. Um, so there wasn't really. I mean, there was like bands that I knew in high school and stuff, which is also kind of what kickstarted my interest in local music, particularly, mm. and getting involved in like the high school music scene and things like that. But I didn't really know anybody who played bass, let alone taught bass. Gotcha. So gotcha, it gotcha. just didn't really seem like an option. I never really even thought about it, to be honest. Mm, okay. And um, do you find that middle of learning comes into pretty much everything you do? Yeah, definitely. Like, I'm very much a learner who needs to experience. Like, I'm an experiential learner. So uh, I can watch a tutorial on YouTube to learn how to do something in Adobe Premiere or whatever when I'm doing some video editing. Mm. Um, and I can follow along, but I'm not going to remember until I do the steps myself and do it a couple times. Mm. So I, I think everything I do kind of has that aspect to it. I think that's a great way of learning. And that's one thing people some people don't do is that repeating repeating the pattern part like you do it once because you follow someone and it comes out great but if you don't do it over and over again you always have to go and refer to that video and i'm talking about myself yeah yeah totally yeah 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 <laughs> i do I'm that a lot i mean i've looked up the same tutorial videos a lot of times you know what i mean it just does it has to stick at some point so. <laughs> it has yeah. to stick at some point and and um do you did you form how long before you formed the band uh it wasn't too long actually like i kind of before i even started playing an instrument i was sort of jumping in and trying to sing with a band in high school and stuff mm -hmm. like that which also not very good <laughs> um and yeah i mean i think by the time i was always because i played bass i was frequently not frequently like i wasn't in high demand but i always seemed to have a band like i was able to play with some friends of mine mm -hmm. the first real band i think i played in in terms of being a band that made an album was a band called Alan Benjamin. It was two of my best friends from high school and myself, and we were just the three-piece. Was anybody Alan Benjamin? Uh, it was like the front person's middle names, kind oh, of. So it was sort okay. of like he tried to treat it as this like alter ego kind of thing. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, and that 
that was the first time that I kind of really learned how to be in a band to play. I had played shows with other bands before that, but this was sort of like, okay, we're going to go into the studio, we're going to make a record, and we're going to oh, save our money. Oh, you made a record? Yeah, we made two records, actually. Oh, wow. Band. Yeah. Um, so, how, yeah. How, um, what was that experience? It was really interesting, actually, because until then I hadn't had any studio experience. And that was, I think, sort of formative. And I'm the kind of musician who could just be in the studio all the time. Oh. Like right now when we're with my band Quiet Parade, we're in this phase where we're writing new music. And we've got a couple songs done and we're in the studio right now. And just last week, for example, we were in the studio and just cutting a demo so that we could kind of refine it and work it on, work it out for the record. On what studio do you work at? Uh, right now we're recording part of the album at New Scotland yard in dartmouth it's so cool yeah it's, it's nice so movie. cool um but the, we were doing some demo recording at the golden palm which is also our rehearsal studio oh, uh, run okay. by palmer jameson oh, okay, okay, yeah. okay. yeah so you know I, but I, I just found myself in that moment just like really falling in love with studio life and i'm mm. like i love being in the studio and i'm constantly working to get us in the studio like <laughs> the goal of my band currently is just always like okay let's have enough money in the bank to make another record you know uh, so okay and um so do you write the songs for quiet parade yeah i mean i think i we, it started very much because okay so i was in many of this band so i played in a band called alan benjamin when i lived in yarmouth then i moved here to halifax and i started playing in a band called the establishment which was the drummer josh pache who we call pinky um, him uh, who played in Alan Benjamin with me and then he moved up here and we started playing in a band with our friend Mike Dion um, who was playing in a band called Capsize that we both just loved when we were in high school they were like the high school band you know um, so we started playing in a band together with him uh, and that was called The Establishment at the same time both of us Josh and I joined a band called Sleepless Nights which was a band formed by Aaron Wallace, who we went to high school with, but he was a couple years older and had already been living in Halifax and playing some bands. So I was always the bass player in these bands. Mm. So I started playing Quiet Parade stuff as a way for me to just, you know, play my own music because I wasn't writing those songs for the mm. most part. I was, you know, holding down the low end kind of thing. So, um, so when Quiet Parade first started, I played everything or like I sort of conceived of everything i would mm -hmm. come to people and say okay we're gonna go make this record here's how i want it to sound and for the first couple of records that's sort of the orientation and then eventually what started as a side project became sort of my main project yeah, well, yeah. and the people you know i kept bringing in musicians to back me up if we had shows or to play on records and then eventually those people just became the same people all the time and eventually we just started writing songs together so now musically like more of the ideas are coming from the group but oh, i still yeah. spearhead a lot of the ideas the arrangements and I do 100% of the lyrics. Wow. Yeah. That's a lot of work. Yeah, yeah. But it's fun. <laughs> it's fun work. Like, it's yeah. motivating work. That's kind of one of the things that really helps with the formation of of having other people give, have a having a scenario where you allow other people to kind of yeah. impact your creativity. For me, what is most fun right now about the band is like working together with the the other people in my band on something on a piece of music mm. and then okay saying okay we've got this verse this chorus mm. i'm gonna go home and i'm gonna try and work out some of the rest of the parts and i'm gonna come up with the lyrics and then i come back for the next rehearsal and we've got mm. something to work on even further so i find it very motivating to have other creative inputs and outlets kind of coming into the fold oh man that's great you know it's like having this set of people that just understand you and you kind of bounce ideas of each other yeah and we come from we all come from different places and stuff and different musical backgrounds so i think um what we've really succeeded in doing is like knowing what the common ground is among our group and and using those resources to kind of come to some 
coherent and cohesive piece that really makes sense for who we are as musicians and as a group. And then Choir Parade, oh, you came up with the name? Yeah, I honestly have no story for it. <laughs> yeah, like It's one of those things where I was just like, I think I was walking down the street and I thought about that phrase and I was like, that's pretty neat. And kind of like the vibe, when the band first started, it was kind of like a a more kind of like folk poppy kind of scenario. And it, it's kind of gone through different formations. Like sometimes it veers a little alt country and oh. this new music is sort of veering more into the pop rock straight up. And, oh. and I'm like now... Um, playing bass in the band so we were a five piece for a long time and in that guitar it was always my band where i would write the songs on guitar and play them and sing them and play guitar mm. um recently in the last year i've started playing bass we've gone to a four piece and i've just taken over the bass duties but i'm also fronting the band still so it's like a new thing but the way that i play bass the style that i have really kind of dictates the kind of songs i can write and sing in that formation too mm. uh, and those tend to be because of my affiliations with bands like sleepless nights who was kind of like a power pop band oh. the way i play bass it's a lot of eighth notes it's a, it's very like like it's punk rock in its style i suppose but the music i play is not really punk rock it's just a lot of the like downstrokes a lot of fast kind of stuff so the music we're writing now is a lot more upbeat and peppier and more it's got more of a rock slant for sure and with with the titles <laughs> like do you have any song titles that just sound out there out there no i i'm one of those people who like i'm very influenced by pop music and like the pop structure and i'm a big taylor swift fan and katy perry and like stuff like that mm. um so i kind of somebody i remember somebody saying like what will people google if they if they hear your song on the radio what's the thing they're gonna google so i always try and think of that when i like <laughs> so there's not a lot of titles that you're, that you're not gonna hear in the chorus of yeah, my song yeah, for yeah, example yeah, yeah. so i'm always just conscious of just being weary of the experience for others and too. what was the last song you guys recorded or plan to record now um the song we just demoed which is probably the next song we'll go into the studio to do is called nervous all the time Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, what is that about? Uh, it's I don't know. Like songs for me don't necessarily come from like they start at a certain spot, and I always kind of come to the table with an idea of like, okay, here's what I want uh, to say with this song. But yeah. then as you're writing, like by the time you get to verse three or something, your brain is in a different spot. So they kind of maintain a thematic element throughout but then for me they always kind of like veer in and out of stories so it's always hard for me to say like this song is about this thing because because yeah. it's kind of about five things yeah, i yeah, suppose yeah. and um i like i don't i had that line going around with me a lot uh just based on a song actually that we used to play with with sleepless nights mm. um and it was I can't remember the exact line. I th oh no, the the line of the song that Aaron wrote was "People make me nervous, whiskey makes me shake," and I always thought like, oh, that's a fucking really good line. Um, and then I sort of just have tried to co-opt it into some way, and this it ended up being this. Uh, but the story of the chorus, I guess, at least in this song, comes from a sort of text message that I had with a friend of mine of just being like really trying to be really supportive of going through like change times of change and tough times and oh. like the lyric of the chorus is like i am yours and you are mine like don't forget like we're here for each other mm. but then i kind of throw in this line so that the ending is like i am yours and you are mine but i get nervous all the time mm. so it, it's sort of a reflection on just you know 
um, never being quite certain and never being quite a hundred percent on on the decisions you're going to make, but understanding that you kind of need to lean into the nervousness sometimes for good things to happen. True, yeah. true. I agree. I mean, it, that's a powerful song. I like that title, though. That was all the time. Yeah, yeah, wow, yeah, yeah. So it cool. it kind of grabs you a little bit. I, I hope do, so. Do you like this song? I love it. Yeah. Okay. Like, it definitely, uh, it's a song that I think, I think when people hear these new songs from us, like, mm -hmm. we haven't really been, we've played, like, one or two shows where, um, we've kind of debuted this formation of the four piece. Uh, so I think a lot of people who know our band, when they hear this new music, they're going to be like, okay, same band, but this sounds different. And it's going, it's obviously going in a different direction. Yeah. Um, and this song, I think of the rest mm -hmm. is the most kind of far out there. Okay. Uh, it kind of really leans into, um, I don't know. There's like a spookiness to it. The chords are really interesting, but then it opens up into sort of like a major chord chorus. But the the way that the drums and the bass are interplaying, the kind of activity of all the stuff. Hmm. I don't know. I think people are going to hear this and go like, oh, wow, I didn't... I could make... Like, if you followed us for 10 years, you might say like, I could see this coming or this has always been there, but it's just amplified. Mm. But if you know like two of our songs, you might like, think like, oh, wow, this is a different band now is, or something. Oh, wow, yeah. wow, wow. Um, so, man, with such a, a very, I guess, like uh, enterprising music background what brought you into pub, uh, public relations um with pigeon row yeah like i went to school for, what is even the story behind the pigeon row name uh that is not a question i can i'm like super <laughs> equipped to answer it, mm. it kind of in it, it i work for this guy named matt charlton and it's his company so he's the kind of creative genius behind all that stuff gotcha, gotcha. Uh, i think the real answer is kind of mundane and there's probably <laughs> you know similar to the quiet parade story you yeah know? yeah um but the i started working for him because i went to journalism school i did a four-year program at the university of king's college okay, i did okay. a, the journalism program there the bachelor of journalism and what I really wanted to do was like do writing for magazines and specifically arts features and things like this. So oh. even going into journalism school, I was like arts focused and sort of at the tail end of that, going into a completely finishing that and then going into a completely different discipline thereafter. I sort of, he was dating a friend of mine and I knew he was starting this business and I kind of just said, you know, if you ever get to the point where you need some help, like I've got the skills, I'd love to help. And I'm really interested in sort of this aspect of helping musicians, which is essentially a publicist's job. When you're working with a client, your job is to, to help them achieve their goals. Mm. Um, and then when it got time for him to be able to kind of take on some people and hire, like he would just hire me like on a contract basis to work, you know, a couple hours a week to do certain things. And, I did that for five or six years, and then that kind of eventually transformed into this being a full-time job. Mm. And then what what do you do? I mean, I know you publicize artists, but what are some of the exa uh, specific things you do? Uh, so, like, our, I always say, like, our job is to – anything you read about an artist in the press, it's sort of our job to make that happen or set that up or facilitate those conversations. So whether that's interviews with a newspaper uh, radio spins on like CBC, um, you know, reviews of an album. My job is to sort of go out and source all the, those people who are writing those things or doing those interviews or doing that reporting 
and turn them on to the people that I'm working with. Oh, wait. Okay. So, I mean, Pigeon Row is pre-established and you work with a lot of festivals now. If an artist is just starting out, it isn't the right time to come talk to Pigeon Row, would you say? Yeah, I mean, I think right now it's a particularly difficult time. Like, I've worked for over 10 years as a publicist and mm -hmm. have noticed... Uh, of a shrinking of the mediums out there in terms of resources, in terms of availability, all these things, right? So it used to be we'd be able to send out a press release and five or six people would just pick things up from the press release, whether they would be bloggers or, or more established kind of outlets. Um, and now the things like that are happening less and less. So I think like it's not impossible for a first time band to have a really great record and to make a good impression. Mm -hmm. I think what's always important is sort of like the story you want to tell, because right now anybody can put out a record. Really, it's it's getting easier for people to make music. It's getting people for it's getting easier for people to distribute their own music through the Internet and put it on Spotify and all these things. So mm. the question you have to ask yourself is, like, how can I stand out above that pack? Yeah. And my experience has been when even if it's a first time person, if there's a good thing to talk about, if there's an interesting thing to talk about there, we've got a better chance of getting those people's attention. Oh. Um, so that would be my recommendation is sort of like no matter what level of client I'm working with, the this, yeah. The question I always have is like, okay, what's the story here? And how can we make this more than Artist X has created a new album? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I didn't even think of that. Because, you know, sometimes I'm always like, oh, man, um, this is guys in the city, whatever, is making great music. And it'd be great if XYZ person is talking about the person. But then you sit back and think about it, but like, okay, so they are just... 10 people have putting out great music yeah. I like you can find it on Spotify but you're right it's it's about finding that distinct thing about this person that kind of sets them apart from the other 20 people that are doing the same thing yeah like you always have to ask the why mm. like why would somebody want to talk about this you know mm. and there are people out there who are very much like music purists so the why could very much be this is this record's amazing um, but my, I think there are fewer and fewer of those people and even those people who exist. And I'm not saying that people like just have abandoned the will. It's like it, when it comes to something like a newspaper, it is very much an issue of resources. So I talk to people sometimes who are very on board with some of the things I'm working on, mm. but they're like, my editor wants me to write about Drake, Yeah, you know, which is like, I like Drake, but you know, the, we need, we it's I've always struggled with this idea of like, is it a chicken or egg scenario? Like the idea is like people don't want to read about a new artist and it's like, well, do people not want to read about a new artist because they're not reading about a new artist or do they really only care about reading about the, the sort of high level profile artists that we have? Mm. And in Canada, by the way, when you're talking about Canadian media, yeah. we have more sort of global megastars now, I would argue, than ever before. So it's easier to get your CanCon kind of contributions in the door by but talking about something <laughs> that like a mass amount of people will understand and know, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's true. Hmm. Yeah. I did. Wow. So much. Well, I guess that helps because you've done this for 10 years. So you pretty much know what you're talking about. What, what, what do you remember the first, um, the first, maybe not the actual first one, but the first, uh, project at Pigeon Row, you were super excited working on when I first, started i mean we get cool stuff coming to us a lot and i'm always just like very thankful and also this company has like turned me on to 
some music that I probably didn't know about or I've kind of come to really appreciate. Mm -hmm. Um, But I would say when I first started, my job essentially was to kind of do like uh, campus radio tracking and mail outs and and really develop a section of the company that was focused on campus radio. Mm. And to me as someone who has been, I mean, at the time I wasn't involved in radio, really. I was kind of just getting my feet wet uh, over at CKDU. Mm. But that, I think, really um, excited me a, a lot about that job. So it wasn't necessarily a client. It was the job in particular gotcha. and just being in touch with com- community and campus radio stations across the country and mm. understanding how, like, important those charts are to the artists that you're working with and just making – because, I mean, for a lot of the people we're working with, even to this day – campus and community radio is the only kind of radio that's going to play them. So making sure that people can have access to this music and be able to actually play it on air Mm. is something that I believe in, not only as a person who has that job, but as just a person who lives in a community where, to me, music is of the utmost importance. Yeah, Yeah, we love music here in Halifax, really. Yeah, And and, uh, what do you think of uh, venues here in the city? I mean, I think there's gone. We've gone through some changes. Certainly, like there's no, um, there's no denying it. When I first moved here in 2002, it was sort of I would call it like the second golden age of like Halifax music. So I was coming in really hot on the scene of like, um, you know, dependent music was a record label based kind of between Halifax and and Toronto at that time, but originally kind of its origins started in Yarmouth, which is where I'm from. So it was something I had followed for a long time. And I followed some of those bands kind of to Halifax winter sleep, for example, like their first record came out in 2003 and they were one of the bands that because they had members from Yarmouth and they'd always been part of this scene that I just definitely like latched onto and followed around, literally followed them around to (laughs) to shows and stuff. Um, And so I feel like at that time it was the, it was kind of the culture where you would just kind of stop into a bar because there was music going on and it didn't really matter. And I remember a big thing about that era being a really eclectic bills so like Winter Sleep would play with Big Game Hunt because they were friends, but Big Game Hunt was like a real stoner rock band, mm-hmm. and Winter Sleep was kind of playing songs that were somewhere between Nick Cave and Low. You know, like it was it was different, and people didn't seem to care. Oh. You know, and I think I I don't know why, but at a certain point I think that switched where there was an expectation of like the bill all kind of has to sound the same, this is, yeah. which I think affected stuff. But I think there's like. A, a lot of people try to pin the decline on attendance of live music on a lot of things. And I don't think there's one answer. I think there's a lot of answers. Mm. Um, you know, people are going to point to things like Spotify and Netflix and sure. I think that plays a role in it. I also personally think that a decline in media coverage in a city like Halifax for arts, a focus on arts coverage on a grander scale. Mm. Like when you lose those things, people lose their touchstones for, knowing about things, figuring out what they might like or what they might not like. But also you can couple that with sort of an explosion of internet coverage as well. So people are focused more on bigger things and not necessarily what's going on in their hometown. So I think there's lots and lots of going mm. go that goes into it. I've always been very interested and I'm, I would like, I'm going to find somebody to do this someday, if not myself, to sort of do a comparison, like a record comparison of Okay, what venues were around in 1994 versus mm-hmm. 2004 versus yeah. 2014? So and my years. inclination is like 
even though more people were going out to those shows and there might have been sort of peaks and valleys in those regards, like I think if you start comparing those eras, there weren't really like plus or minus. I think it's people's attitudes that have changed and people's habits that have changed. Mm. But the amount of venues that we have, I think now, like in 2019, like we're probably on a in the in the bottom of a valley, you know. But I think like there's always been underground venues. There's always been sort of like venues that aren't mainstream. Yeah. And we can't discount the importance of those venues, like to people who want to go see music and who choose to seek music out. And we have, like, if you talk to uh, someone on a certain level, they're not going to consider lost and found a proper venue. But that doesn't mean that music doesn't happen there, you know? Or they're not going to consider, like, how many times the Obey convention brings music into the North End Library. Mm-hmm. You know, things like this is like people do the work sometimes to, to make venues happen because they know that arts need to happen in the city so Mm. there are people i think who would misconstrue that a little bit and they would talk about sort of like actual venues or longevity of venues but it's it's about like space and and where can we find those spaces too sometimes that people i think forget yeah yeah i know um, I mean, but at, on the other end, we still have great venues and we still have great people coming out playing music. And you mentioned Obey now. I was wondering what your thoughts on festivals are. Definitely, we're seeing like a contraction, I think, of festivals, like especially things like the, the, like in the dead of winter just announced they're taking a year off you know they've been a mainstay in halifax for 14 years but a lot of the other like yeah a lot of the big festivals that are kind of we're used to having like pop explosion which is kind of going on 30 years of being a a a festival um the scale of that festival has gotten smaller purposefully Mm. uh, kind of bringing it back to its roots it kind of really exploded for lack of a better term, mm. uh, you know, in the sort of mid to mid aughts to sort of like teen aughts. Um, and then based on, I, like, I think what happened was there was a big bubble of festivals too that really affected how these smaller festivals operated. Because if a band now is being offered $20,000 for a gig in their hometown, when that's going to drive their price up uh, because there's like 10 festivals you can play in Ontario that are willing to pay that because they're kind of these big major festivals Mm. so that when a smaller festival comes and offers 10 or whatever the case may be, you're like, well, why would I do that when I can get 20 and stay home? Um, And that's kind of a weird thing that I think people don't realize about festival booking. It's like, it's not like for lack of trying. People want to have good stuff come here, Mm. but it's expensive to come here. And especially if you're not like, we're sitting here having a conversation at the tail end of Jazz Festival, which is like an ideal time to attract artists because they're on that summer festival tour circuit Mm. a festival like pop explosion has a challenge in that it happens in october so artists from the uh, america for example oftentimes they're asking them to come and do one show which increases the budget right yeah 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 yeah. so these are the things that kind of go on behind the scenes i think that a lot of people don't realize and and present real 
real significant challenges mm. to some festivals. Yeah. Now, that said, I think the people who are running festivals here, there's amazing music that comes here. I think Pop Explosion brings some of the best bands you'll ever see. Um, they're, they're very much in the same vein as Obey, like take a chance on a band and go see something and you're going to see something incredible. I feel mm. the same way about Sappy Fest in Sackville, New Brunswick. They bring amazing people to this neck of the woods. And sometimes those people are Charles Bradley and Arcade Fire. You know, but then sometimes yeah. it's just like a band, a really cool band from Montreal that you're going to see on t at two o'clock in the afternoon mm. on Saturday, and they might be the best band you see all weekend or the most surprising band. So I think when it comes to festivals, there are people who are like creative, the creative directors, the executive directors, the programmers, the bookers who do a good job of understanding that like festivals aren't just about presenting stuff that people know. Mm. It's about taking ownership over the creativity and saying like trust us we're putting something amazing together for you yeah i mean I'm, but he's also a lot of work though oh yeah <laughs> oh yeah i've not, I know, you know i work with a lot of festivals as yeah. a publicist but yeah i don't work in the sort of trenches of programming and booking and making the venues happen yeah, like yeah, yeah, yeah. that's a, that, those are thankless jobs <laughs> yeah um and talking about that uh i remember the ecmas where you pretty much handle media for that and it's i was just there for a few days and it was crazy yeah it's a madhouse well i but think how, how do you you know make it all work because i was just watching you pretty much make the right people get to the right place to talk to the right people yeah right yeah i think some of that is is time and knowledge right like for me i think part of uh, like public relations. Like you have to be a personable person. You have to kind of be out. I, I am lucky that I am kind of out and about in that sector. So I know a lot of the people mm. I've been working with some of these people for a really long time. So if I need them to do something or if I need to call on a favor, like these are things that just kind of come as part of your Rolodex as a publicist. But I'm also like a very, I would like to think I'm a big member of that community in general when it comes to music in the Atlantic provinces, specifically in Halifax and Nova Scotia. Like I've been doing this for almost 20 years now and people know who I am. They know that I've got a radio show. They, they know I'm a publicist. They know I play in bands. So like uh, there's like a trust that comes with some of that stuff too, to not just be some weirdo person in the background, <laughs> like trying to like turn the keys, you know, it's like, yeah. they know, they know that I'm, I'm coming at them for like legit reasons. Yeah, and, yeah, and yeah. I'm also very upfront about the things that when I do that work is sort of like, I want, I want to put people in good situations. I want to give them good opportunities and mm. I want to, you know, keep that relationship that I have with folks in the media going. Um, and also keep that relationship with the artist alive and well, you know? Yeah. Um, actually, you were saying you've been doing this for 20 years, and I think Halifax is running, what, 10 years now? 11? Uh, it'll be 10 years in September. Sweet. So yeah. how, what, what, how did he get into doing the show? I remember you told me to serve the title. That was great. But how did you start in? How's it been 10 years now? I... I, much like uh, I am learning from telling you these stories, a lot of the origins of something like Halifax is Burning is not glamorous. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I lived, I was always like really interested in radio, but funny enough, when I was in journalism school, I didn't like doing radio at all. <laughs> Why not? I just didn't like the writing of it. Like it was so succinct and I was like really interested in feature writing and magazine writing and narrative nonfiction and stuff like that. So mm. when you're writing for scripts for radio and, you know, everything's like 10 words or less and it's very, it was just wasn't 
like fun for me. Yeah. Um, and so I didn't get into radio till after journalism school, but I'd always been interested in radio. And I was a kid, I like would would uh, make like radio station tapes, like oh like yeah. dub a tape yep, yep, and then yep. dub my voice, being like doing the back sell yeah. and then introduce <laughs> another song. You know, like I remember doing those things. So I always kind of I guess was interested in stuff. And I was living very close to the Dalhousie campus at the time mm. and uh, just decided, like, oh, yeah, that's something I could do. Like, I, I think it was, like, a particular summer where after I first – no, that's not true. I'm mixing up stories. But I don't know. I just felt like I had some time. Mm -hmm. It was something I was interested in doing. I had heard a lot about CKDU mm. because of my interest in local music and about how influential it was and important it was to the sort of scene in the 90s and to things like the Halifax Pop Explosion and having sort of a, a crucial role in in – defining a music culture in and around Halifax for a long time. So I thought that's something I would like to be part of, you know, and that I just went in awesome. and did the training and then started a show. I think the, the way, I mean, the way it works for people who don't know is basically you have to do a bunch of volunteer work to kind of earn the, earn your way into the airwaves, you know? And, <laughs> uh, and then from there you kind of do some tests and that like, like not a written test, but like, uh, you know, you do samples basically and you can spend some time on air to show that you're comfortable. And yeah. I just did that all very quickly. Yeah. And then I started just, um, signing up to fill in on a slot on Tuesdays at six 30 mm -hmm. and it seemed to work for me and it kept, and I just, once I put together a program application, then I was in, and I have been at Tuesday at 6.30 ever, ever <laughs> since. <laughs> but then, um, what, what do you prefer, uh, like, the live shows or when, when, how do you decide, I guess, when you can't be there, what show you're going to record to put up? Yeah, I mean, I per, I much prefer doing it live for mm. two reasons. One, uh, it's a timing thing. So, like, there's something about being live, like, you can't really correct a mistake. If I can't be there live, which I would say these days is, like, more often than not, I am live. Mm. Because if I'm going to pre-record something at home, which I have the capability of doing, the the it's probably going to take me twice or three times as long. Cause if I mess something up, I'm going to go like, Oh no, do <laughs> yeah, that over again. Yeah. I can do, I can do that one better. Yeah, you know, yeah, it's like yeah. recording vocal takes. It's just like, yeah. no, the, let's just nail it on the radio. You just have to nail it. when you're live. <laughs> right And there, if you yeah. don't, you don't. And, and, yeah. and that's fine. And that, I think there's something kind of like charming about that too. Hearing someone mess up on the radio oh or something, God. you know, I have a story. Cause um, you know, I met you, I said, I wanted to get a show there. And then, uh, and then the very first real show that, I'm on. I don't know for some reason the song played it's played like a few hours ago and then I press play and it just won't play, right? And I'm like, oh yeah, and this song is coming to play and I press play and then it goes dead. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But then I'm like, and then I'm like, what am I doing? Anyway, I start talking and then I look for another song to play. What's so weird? Yeah, it's fun. <laughs> but it, there's a little bit of magic in that, I think. Yeah. Like, and hearing that, like as a radio listener, there's something special about that too. Mm. So I prefer the live for sure. I do like doing like, in the last couple of years, I haven't really done it in, I would say in over a year now because just a timing thing. But mm. um, 
I was real. I love podcasts, and I specifically love um, sort of the production element of podcasts. So some of my favorite podcasts are like storytelling podcasts, mm-hmm. uh, where they can weave in, you know, like soundscapes or samples or whatever, so that it gives you like a clearer picture. So I would often have people on my show to do interviews and things, and we would be talking about a song, and then we play that song. But I thought, oh well, since my I'm sort of real into podcast zone. Uh, I'm going to go out and do interviews like in the field and set up much like a scenario like this, a couple mics in a room and have a, a longer conversation with a person that I'm really interested in uh, and then take that home, edit it, make it really glossy and then um, put like a 10 minute segment on the live show and then push people to sort of a podcasted version. So I think version. there's like 15 online that I've done with nice. various people, like some really awesome stuff too. Like yeah. I also wanted to treat it as a way of me um, sort of furthering my education about music specifically around these parts. So one of the first people I interviewed was Mike O'Neill from the Inbreds oh, wow. because he was part of that community, but he wasn't from Halifax. Like he had moved from Ontario. So I wanted to kind of get his perspective on like what all that looked like in that like moment, yeah, you know? Yeah. Um, and then I've also talked to like Jerry Grinelli, uh, who is a jazz legend who moved to Halifax in the 60s. And most people, myself included, know him best because he's the drummer on the Charlie Brown Christmas album, which has always been a crucial Christmas album in my house, you know? And just talking to him about, like, how that all came together and his stories. But then having the opportunity to just talk to him about, like, what he's interested in now and and what he's working on. And he's so community-oriented and just a magnificent human being. So, like, Mm. having creating those opportunities for myself to talk to people about things that I love, but in a way that is also teaching me was something I was really wanting to do more with the podcast. And I think I'm hoping that there will come a time where I can sort of spend more time doing that. Um, But for right now, I sort of just have set it aside and gone back to doing interviews live in the studio. Okay. Um, You know, so I'm going to tie it up with this. We, We have your whole music background and then the publicist and the radio show. But like, I think to me, when you told me about Acadian Embassy, I feel it kind of just ties all these things that are super passionate about into one place. So I want to end it with, with this question, why did you start it and what is your plan moving forward with Acadian Embassy? Yeah, I, well, Acadian Embassy, the name came from a house that I lived in. So um, we kind of had this tradition amongst friends where if a group of people were living in a house, you know, like they would just be like, oh, yeah, come. Like my fr- I have friends who live at a place we call it the castle. They're like, yeah, come over to the castle Friday night or whatever. Uh, and so we kind of wanted to pick up a, a similar tradition. We, we rented this entire house. Uh, it was myself and my girlfriend and my friend Josh Pache, who I mentioned earlier, and his mm-hmm. partner at the time. So the first thing we did when we moved in was like, okay, we need a name for this house. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, three of the four of us were Acadians, mm-hmm. so we decided to call it the Acadian Embassy. And then Josh and I had run a record label or, you know, run a record label. <laughs> I used full quotations around all of that sentence. Um, we had kind of started this thing called No Scene Records when we were in the establishment. And okay. uh, it was sort of a, similar to some of the other collectives that we had seen. We just kind of wanted we to put music out, help people put music out that were friends of ours or who weren't, you know, attached to some of the existing labels and stuff. Mm-hmm. So we tried to create this little community for ourselves. Didn't like pan out super well, but then we decided to do it again um, under this title, the Acadian embassy. And really the label was started as a way of saying like, okay, we're in this house. Mm-hmm. And then we kind of 
our basement was our jam space. We had a loft upstairs that was sort of like, you know, it ended up being a bedroom at one point, but it was sort of like, could be whatever. And then we had an office that we had set aside to kind of have, you know, label affairs, you know, <laughs> running there. So we, we, but we basically wanted to start the label as a document of what was going on in that house creatively. Mm. So the bands that we were playing in, the people who were coming through, we really wanted to sort of create this little community around the things that we were doing and the things that we were interested in. So it really started there. And yeah. then it, it kind of had, it morphed, I think, over time because of the name. Uh, and it's still very much that. Like, it's a very small roster. Right now, it's only myself who runs it. Um, and, you know, really, there's two to three active bands on that roster right now. Choir Parade, a band from Yarmouth called Rain Over St. Ambrose, uh, and uh, Fossil Cliffs, which is Mike Dion's new band that I play bass in sometimes. But he mm -hmm. has kind of like a rotating cast of people. Yeah. Um, and then we all, like Josh's band at the time, Coado, was a mainstay on that on that label. Anyway, all this to say that like the music and the community and and then sort of questions about the name, like where is it coming from? It really mm. led us down this path of like talking about cultural identity a lot more in oh, ways that we never really had done. Yeah. Uh, and really kind of started spurring these conversations about like, okay, well, when we talk about being Acadians, we're talking about this experience for us because we're from this very specific part of the world. Mm. Um, how does that differ from other Acadian experiences. We had also played in a band like with Sleepless Nights, Josh and Aaron and I were all Acadians. We all went to an Acadian high school. We all came from different Acadian communities. Mm. And we would go across the country and talk to people and talk, you know, it would come up in conversation. And we realized quickly that people around the world, like around the country, don't know what Acadians are sometimes. Yeah. And for us, that seemed so weird, not only because we're from here, but because that was just like something that was really drilled into us from a, a you know, a young age was the story and the history of these, this ancestry that we all shared, yeah. um, which is quite a fascinating ancestry when you think about it in context of like, you know, the, the colonial settlement of this country we now call Canada mm. and, you know, the, the timing of everything, you know, the first French settlers who came to Nova Scotia came here in 1604 uh, and then we're talking about Canada developing in the in the sort of 19th century, you know, like so. There's this whole vast history of of this ancestry that we have of people who come here, who settle some lands in really unique ways, mm -hmm. who develop uh, agricultural skills based on the geography and and based on the sort of limitations of the ocean and all these kind of things, and then mm -hmm. this tremendous story of. Uh, a cultural expulsion at the hands of the British because it was a French and British territory. Uh, it, you know, obviously it was an indigenous territory, but at that time the colonial kind of structures were fighting over this p parcel of land that we now call Nova Scotia and parts yeah. of New Brunswick. And then the sort of end result becomes the French uh, descendants get physically exported from the country yeah. at the hands of the English. So like to me, I'm a, I'm a history nerd mm. and that story is, is amongst a lot of really interesting stories that I think there are to be told, but it also is a story that we know quite well. And there are people out there who don't know. So anyway, this is a long winded way of saying like, we wanted some of that to come through in the art that we were making and the discussions that we were having. And not, not to say that every single band that we work with mm. has a, like an Acadian slant to it, but we always try to bring sort of um, an Acadian mentality to it in, 
in that like the idea of community is very important in like small Acadian communities and working together and helping each other, yeah. especially if times are tough. So we wanted those morals and those values to be reflective of the way we uh, did business, the way that we chose to work with artists, the way yeah. that we brought people into the fold. Um, and then personally, I started using that as an, as a way of like go, doing like real deep dive into sort of concepts of cultural identity. What does it mean to be Acadian? What does it mean to be Acadian in 2019? How is that shifting? You know, I'm really interested in these conversations. So now I kind of use the embassy both as this means of supporting and helping artists, mm. but also as a way to sort of have deeper conversations and to use it as a platform to be like, we are we're going to talk about this, you know? Wow. Man, that's super profound. And I actually, like I said, I'm going to ask you, cause I'm, I want to take my show to the next level. And I'm, I'm, I'm just mirroring everything I do based on Halifax's body. <laughs> I don't know. That's a good strategy. <laughs> thanks so much for coming in today, Trevor. Oh, thanks. I mean, I'm always happy to have a chat. This is the Blackout Podcast. Thanks for listening.